A warm welcome again to R.W. Johnson, political scientist, historian, best-selling author, and the most popular columnist on Biz News. And last week, we published one of Mr. Johnson's columns, which was really instructive, opened my eyes, and I'm sure it did yours too, if you've read it on Biz News Premium, about the reason why so many Americans support Donald Trump returning to the White House, despite the fact that he's 77, despite the fact that he is a, I suppose you could call him a convicted fraudster, because the American courts have said that he inflated the value of his assets and have fined him $500 million, and the chaotic first term. But reading all of that, Mr. Johnson, uh, certainly opened my eyes. Maybe let's start at the very beginning. It does appear to be very strange to those of us who live outside of the United States that the U.S. are putting a 81-year-old against the 77-year-old in the election for the highest office of the land. Is this part of the fact uh, of the demographics of the country or the changing demographics of the country? Well, I don't really think so. I mean, it is true, of course, as in all Western countries, that longevity is increasing so that there are more and more quite spry and active people in their 70s around. Uh, and in that sense, the bar is being lifted. But that is not the reason for this. Um, it's, it's more, I mean, there are special reasons why Trump is popular. We'll talk about that. But in the case of Biden, uh, I think it's simply that, you know, what settled the nomination for Biden in 2020 was essentially the fact that he had been Obama's vice president. And that meant that black voters, who are an absolutely essential part of the Democratic coalition, that was good enough for them. If he'd been good enough for Barack Obama to choose as his number two, well, that was a certificate of roadworthiness, or whatever you like. And that's why he, he managed to win through those primaries after a very poor start. It didn't look like he was going to. But once the black vote settled hard on him, uh, it became clear. I mean, the Democrats cannot win without the black vote. And uh, it wasn't clear that any of the other contenders would get anything like that vote, uh, in a solid vote. Uh, and I think that really was uh, the key to it. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, and he's got through a perfectly successful uh, first term. I think that, to be quite frank, I'm, I'm shocked at his irresponsibility because he didn't have to go on. There are plenty of good Democratic contenders who are a generation younger than him. Uh, he could have done what Lyndon Johnson did and simply said, I'm not running again, and there are plenty of good people. I think you should choose one of them. Don't endorse anyone, uh, certainly not Kamala Harris, who's a very, very weak uh, figure. And that would have been, uh, you, you know. But he has this idea that he is almost uniquely well-placed to defeat Trump. And the fact that he managed it last time, of course, makes him feel that. All I can tell you is that the risk that he is running, because I think that a good uh, Democrat of a younger sort would have had a much stronger position, just as Nikki Haley. I mean, the polls show that she would beat Biden quite comfortably. Trump might beat him much more narrowly. 
But if the Republicans were just certain about getting a winner, they would pick Haley uh, and have none of the troubles they've got with Trump. But there we are. I mean, I think the electorate certainly wants someone in their 40s or 50s. Yet when you read through the arguments that, that you unpacked for us in your column, there's a heck of a lot more that's going on here, which uh, for those of us arts, again, who are on the outside, do not fully appreciate. And in particular, it's the influence of the Hispanic, um, I suppose, voting bloc. Won't you take us through that and, and a little bit of the history there? Well, uh, the point is that, uh, you know, America is famously a country of immigration. <coughs> it also has the longest border in the world where the first world meets the third world. It's otherwise not a very common thing. Uh, 2,000 miles with only a fairly shallow river uh, and very easy for people to cross uh, illegally. Now, the result has been a, a very rapid buildup of Hispanic immigration. Not only, of course, there's all sorts of immigrants coming up, essentially through Ecuador. That's where they start because Ecuador has a no-visa arrangement with America, which makes it sensible to start there. And uh, all sorts of people are piling into Ecuador and then trekking north, including, I may say, a large number of Chinese which is beginning to worry people in the States, wondering how that has happened. But people from Africa, from Asia, from the Middle East, all over, uh, all joining in there. But of course, the biggest single group are Mexicans, uh, who uh, don't have to come up through Ecuador, they're right on the border anyway. The, the point is, I mean, look, uh, to put it in a nutshell, because of this uh, very large uh, Mexican immigration, uh, which is, is very, very, very big. big. So much so that the what is now happening is that America is effectively becoming a, a bilingual country. Already Los Angeles and Miami are Spanish-speaking cities, and uh, the whole of the Southwest uh, is becoming more and more Hispanic all the time. Those are areas which were once part of Mexico and which were conquered by the Americans in the 19th century. But what is happening is that Mexicans are moving into them and there is a sense in which they are becoming part of Mexico again. Now, um, the key thing about Mexican immigration is that the old pattern of migration was that people arrived in America, they were persuaded very strongly they must speak English. They often anglicize their names as well to make it uh, easier for people. And uh, they struggled in the first generation, but their children did better. And by the third generation, many of them were doing extremely well. And there was very strong upward mobility, the American dream. Now, Mexicans don't behave like that. Uh, Many of them don't even bother to get U.S. citizenship, although they could. They're not bothered. They tend to congregate in very large groups of other Mexicans. So they continue to speak Spanish, and their children speak Spanish. And very few of them or their children regard themselves as American. In effect, they're just Mexicans who have moved across the border, and they stay there. Now, Worryingly, this group shows no appetite for that sort of immigrant behavior that was traditional. They don't 
become rapidly English-speaking. They don't anglicize their names. That's all right. But nor do they work hard to succeed educationally, which traditionally the immigrants did. So you find that even in the third generation, there's not much social mobility. Uh, and Mexicans account for a large number of the people living on welfare. Uh, and, you know, the th now other Hispanics uh, are operating far more like the traditional migrant did. But there is a particular problem about Mexican immigration. And what is happening as a result is that quite rapidly, America is soon going to cease to be a white majority country. Now, it's important to say that the reason why they reckon that way is that Hispanics do not count as white, uh, which in some ways is peculiar. But um, the, the results, I mean, there are also, of course, as I say, many Asians coming in, many blacks coming in, uh, and uh, so, I mean, it isn't just Hispanics, but it's particularly Hispanics. And the result of that, first of all, of course, they, they reckon that something like 5 million have come across this year so far, including many, several million illegals. And that by the election, if nothing else has been done, and it looks like nothing else will be done, that figure could be up to 10 million. Now, when such a large number of poor and hungry people arrive, uh, first of all, it exerts a strong downward pressure on wages so that poorer Americans are adversely affected. There's no way around that. It's one of the classic reasons why trade unions and socialist parties have never got very far in America, is that the bottom part of the labor market is continuously being undercut by large numbers of other poor people arriving. But what it also means is that the normal old majority group, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, or even just white Protestants, if you like, is gradually being submerged. And it, having that group feel very strongly that America is their country, they settled it, all its institutions and traditions and practices grew out of their uh, folkways, if you like, and that it belongs to them. And the idea that they will now become part of a minority is very, very unacceptable. And one can see that this would probably be true in any other country in the world. I mean, a change of that magnitude leaves an awful lot of people feeling that, as it were, the country that they belong to and which is theirs is in some sense being taken away from them. And uh, they want it back. Very much the same cry that you found with Brexit, uh, you know, get, get things back and regain sovereignty, whatever. And I think that that is what gives the Trump following its almost pathological loyalty to Trump, because Trump came to prominence promising to build a wall. That was what separated him from all the other Republican candidates, and that idea lit up those people who were very worried about what was going on, and they saw that as a real solution, and they then, Trump became their man, and they managed to elect him. Now, what's been going on at the border makes them feel like that even more. 
And therefore, if Trump, I mean, they feel that it's only right if people like them are in the majority and win. That is the way it's always been. So if Trump tells them that they were just cheated of victory in 2020 and really he won, they would quite like to hear that because it would mean that their sort of people would be in charge in the country. So I think that the degree of almost fanatical Trump support is related to that, and it explains why uh, all the other things about Trump, which would have put them off with any normal candidate, do not put them off with Trump. It's because they have their own strong reason uh, for wanting uh, what he represents, white nativism, if you like, to win. And I think that that is uh, what I was doing in the article was to show that uh, Samuel Huntington had written a very interesting book about American national identity in the early 2000s, in which he explored all of this and predicted that that would be a, a white nativist reaction. This, the change this big could not happen without a reaction. And so he successfully predicted what was coming long before it did. Uh, and I just wanted to bring that to people's attention. I remember a, um, a very wise man once talking to me about uber-truths. Those are the things that you never mention, but everybody knows. And it's almost like the way you've unpacked it for us. Trump saying, we'll build a wall, we'll stop this, uh, this wave of immigrants, was the overriding factor why he retains his popularity and may well even get elected. But you've, you've got to ask, why are the international leaders uh, so supportive of Trump? Or why is Trump supportive of Putin? It's, it's this whole nationalistic, this whole nationalistic kind of wave that we're seeing around the world. Is that part of this as well? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think these things can be separated out. But remember also that many of the uh, I mean, men are more likely to support Trump than women, and uh, he's particularly strong among the lower-income groups. You can see that if you look at this following. A lot of what Americans would rather unkindly call uh, trailer trash uh, amongst that support. Now, um, I think for a lot of those white men, they have been very irritated for quite a few years now about the fact that for reasons we all know, that there is affirmative action for women over men and very often for blacks and Hispanics over whites. Uh, and they, they, they suffer from that. They often lose out as a result. Now, in other words, Trump also, it's not just about the border. He rages against the sort of political correctness which produces that affirmative action. And in general, he stands up for all sorts of politically rather unpopular isolationist ideas, or at least uh, in terms of the old consensus. And uh, many of his followers are willing to follow him along those lines too. So it does broaden out. And of course, make America great again. The assumption is, and you can see how easily that would work, that if people like us were in charge again properly, and that was the nature of the country, then it would make America great again because our greatest days came when people like us were in charge. You know? uh, so, of course, there is a nationalist element as well. But I think that um, 
you know, other countries have other things. Well, look, immigration is a powerful factor in many countries, no doubt about that. Uh, but I think that in America, the size and speed of the social changes, demographic changes going on, have really lit a fire, uh, which, uh, you know, I, I feel that the Democrats have been very weak and uh, ill-advised not to respond much, much earlier to this. To be quite frank, I think Biden allowing the border to become uh, an increasing problem right throughout his term, it was a huge mistake. It was obvious that Trump was going to uh, exploit that. And now he's rushing far too late to do something about it. It's so many moving parts in this, but from a South African perspective, are there anything, is there anything here that we can take on board that we can learn to better understand what's happening in our country as we approach our elections? Well, uh, not a lot, I think. Of course, there is a great deal of resentment of immigrants here too, as we know, but it's essentially uh, a nativist black resentment of incoming Africans. I don't think that uh, whites, Indians, and coloreds have uh, shown in such strong feelings, although they may have, I don't know. Um, but so there is that parallel. But, uh, and indeed, we have a somewhat open border, which has been the source of all that. And it, it's very foolish of the government to have allowed this situation to build up. I mean, to that extent, it's the same. But I don't think that. There is any parallel otherwise? I don't. I mean, there's no substantial number of whites who would like to restore white rule and saying those were the good old days and that things worked better then. They may feel they may have some feelings in that direction, but they know that that's not realistic and that it leads nowhere. So I don't think there's any group like that. Um, so the parallels are the why then are so many people on social media supportive of Donald Trump, people living in South Africa. What would they get out of it? Sorry, Trump? I don't understand that. Why are so many people on social media? On social media, we see them on the Biz News columns, for instance. We see them on social media supporting Trump and saying that he's, he's a far better solution. And indeed, by extension, it then goes to supporting Putin. Uh, if, you, if you just... Is it because people just don't read or aren't, are, are moved by narrative rather than facts nowadays? Well, I suppose that, um, look, quite a lot of people have swallowed the idea, which I think is fallacious, that Putin is a successful nationalist leader who has revived Russia in certain ways. And, of course, Putin has become a leader of the international right. I mean, he's against... Uh, homosexuality, he's against all, uh, let alone gay marriage and so on. He's against all of the sort of politically correct things uh, of that kind. And in that sense, is, is a very reactionary figure. Uh, and you've got to remember that Putin is advised by and influenced by people who, to be quite frank, are, are fascists, are Nazis. And, uh, he the idea that the people in South Africa have got that he's got some sort of left-wing uh, coloration is very peculiar, because he certainly doesn't. But um, 
I think there is a general feeling that, you know, he does defend the Russian national interest and what's wrong with that. And uh, we all ought to be doing the same thing and so forth. But why otherwise people like Trump and wish to say so here, I, I, I find it hard to fathom because the situations are so different unless they just wish to say that they dissent from the sort of international consensus of a politically correct kind. Okay, uh, I, I understand that, but um, change a great deal because to me, like a very important reason. And with the likelihood of a Trump presidency becoming uh, more probable, how might the world change over the next four years? Well, it could change a great deal because there's no doubt that if Trump were to win, and it's not a foregone conclusion, we shouldn't start assuming that. Um, I think the combination of his legal troubles and the inevitable reaction against him, he's not a popular figure. He's never had 50% support. He could still very easily lose this. But uh, assuming that he did win, I think the impact would be far greater than his first term because it's quite clear that his camp, as it were, is much better organized, would have far stronger programmatic views than it did before. And he would have people who, I mean, throughout his first term, we were always being told that so-and-so and so-and-so were, quote, the adults in the room, i.e. they were restraining Trump from doing some of his more mad ideas. Well, the Heritage Foundation has worked hard to make sure that there won't be any adults in the room next time and that if Trump gets in, he will have lots of people who believe entirely in what he does, ready to work with him and serve him in various posts. So I don't doubt that uh, next time they would achieve a lot more than they did the first time, which would mean that a lot of Trump's ideas would get carried all the way through, not only the border wall, but quite possibly withdrawal from NATO and (coughs) other ideas of that sort. Uh, He's talking about huge tariff increases, especially on Chinese goods. He's talking about up to 60% tariff increase on Chinese goods. Well, I mean, that would absolutely have an amazingly huge effect on world trade. I mean, China-America trade is the biggest single component world trade, and that would almost stifle it with enormous consequences which would be felt right across the world, not just in China. So uh, it's it's quite difficult because I think that, um, you know, he could really break a lot of the furniture. And, of course, he has his own vision of how I think wants things to be. And, uh, you know, some of those changes might be quite popular with some people uh, so that... Uh, I don't doubt that if he builds his wall, that'll be popular. Uh, as for his isolationist uh, impulses, there's always been a market for that in America. I mean, isolationism was the traditional attitude up until basically Pearl Harbor. Uh, that's really what changed there. R.W. Johnson, political scientist, historian, and best-selling author. And uh, if you as a South African are listening to this and thinking it doesn't matter, well, remember, we have one of the most open economies in the world. More than 60% of South Africa's 
economy is either imports or exports. So if world trade were to suffer, boy, we would feel it hard. I'm Alec Hogg from biznews.com. <laughs>